0: setting fire to the stoner stereotype sparking up candid conversations with cannabis researchers entrepreneurs and advocates educator author and advocate Dr Mitch Earlywine is here to tackle the burning issues CannabisRadio.com presents a no holds barred platform that seeks to redefine and revolutionize the entire scope of the cannabis culture while opening the door for more to join the cannabis crusade. Please welcome the host of Burning Issues, Dr. Mitch Earlywine. Thanks
1: for joining us on Burning Issues, where we burn away the cannabis myths with science. As many of you know, I'm Dr. Mitch Earlywine, author of the Oxford University Press book Understanding Marijuana. And I pen the High Times column, Ask Dr. Mitch. Today we'll chat with California's own cannabis whirlwind, Andre Special. And we'll get a special discussion of gateway theory in self-compassion in the art of activism. Andre's been a huge part of cannabis law reform for over 25 years. She's done work for every formal activist thing you can name. She started out on the hemp bus with cannabis legend Jack Herrer. She helped run dispensaries, she's done a ton of fundraising, she's shown amazing dedication to the movement, she's also seen the dangers of prohibition up close and personal. Thanks so much for joining us.
2: Wow, thank you for such an awesome welcome. I'm really happy to be here. Oh,
1: good. Hey, so can you give our listeners a feel for what your positions are lately?
2: Yeah. Lately, I'm busy. I'm a director of three dispensaries in Northern California, Cytology, Baton and CBCB in Berkeley. I also stay really active keeping up with local politics and working on initiatives. In Berkeley, we've been working on regulations that give protections to dispensaries, growers, delivery. It acknowledges the culture of cannabis in Berkeley. I also sit on a couple nonprofit advisory boards and just try to stay active in the cannabis community.
1: No, it's amazing all you do. I'm I'm completely delighted. One thing I really love is it seems like every time you open up a dispensary or start something up, you guys tend to go out in the community and start contributing first. Can you kind of tell me about that and why you like to do it that way?
2: Oh, absolutely. Because Coming from the activist side, I always worked with the community. I always fought for community programs. And I feel like it's extremely important. If I go into a community, I'm so grateful to be there, to be working with the community. It's not just dispensaries. It's any business should act like this. Any business should work with their community and try to better their community. It's a privilege to be operating a business in a city, and I think it's really important that we give back. In the years that I've been doing this, we've worked on so many different projects. Back in the early days when we first were opening dispensaries, there was a saying, look for a property next to the dump yard across from the freeway on the railroad tracks because, you know, 10, 12 years ago, people were afraid of dispensaries. And so we would go into areas that were known to have more crime, that were known to have a lot of trash and pollution, and we would go in there and put in a 24-hour security guard. We would work with neighbors to the point, I mean, we've had elderly neighbors who we'd mow their lawns on a regular basis. Plant flowers, have cleanup days where we would trade medicine to our patients if they would come and clean up the neighborhood. Lots of programs like that. We've opened about three community centers. We had a community garden at one point and in the community centers, we would give programs and classes from veteran support to CPR training that was open to the entire community. And I think that by doing things like that, especially back in the early days when people were very afraid of dispensaries and the feeling was that they were going to bring crime. And so Not only do I feel like it's the right thing for any business to do, but we were really aware back in the early days that we were sort of going to make or break the the marijuana law. How how we all operated could either make people's fears come true or we had a chance to show what kind of businesses that we wanted to run. And I think that those programs really helped move the issue forward in a positive way.
1: I mean, it's just so heartwarming and I feel like that's why California has been such a a success is that you guys were not just teaching about cannabis, but teaching about whatever folks needed and not just planting cannabis plants, but planting flowers and mowing lawns. It's, It's just delightful. I noticed that all your businesses also have a sort of theme for volunteering. And I was curious how that got started and how you think it seems to help.
2: Well, again, coming from the activist community, I've always been a volunteer, and I've seen what people getting together can do. They can really make a difference and a change in in their community and in the world. And so having the dispensaries was really a chance for me to organize large groups of people. And I've found over and over that people are so happy to have a chance to give back. It's, It's really heartwarming. We would start programs, and we'd say at our dispensaries, if you would like to give a class, if you'd like to volunteer, we will work with you and do it in exchange for medicine and so we put out a call to people anybody that would like to lead a class let us know we have i mean from chiropractors to life coaches to you know veterans that want to start a veteran support group and when we talk to them it's so funny because we're so grateful that they're willing to do this program for the patients but then they're so grateful they they'll say wow like you'll give me the space and i can do this and we'll say of course you know and it's it's so exciting and it's so empowering everybody wants to feel like they're part of a community and that they're giving back some of our most heartwarming classes have been Either veteran support with PTSD or some mental illnesses where people would volunteer to lead the classes and tell us, I haven't felt that empowered in a long time. I didn't know that I could still do things like this. And so it really helps everybody. And it's very heartwarming to see. My motto has always been patients helping patients. We're all patients and we're a community and we can help each other out.
1: Oh, man, I'm going to weep. That's so wonderful. So you've been at it so long. How have things changed in California over maybe you know the last ten years?
2: Well, it's changed a lot, you know, like I said, when we first opened up, it was quite shocking to a lot of people, and we did our best to reach out to people. When we first opened, there' was about three of us dispensaries in Sacramento, and we we called the police and asked them to come tour our places and start dialogue and, and we felt like we were taking a huge risk. It was always very important to me because I believe and I've always believed that what I'm doing is legal and so I always felt like I had to operate like a legal business. Going in and getting a business permit, paying your taxes, those were all terrifying things 12 years ago. I mean, normal things that any other business would do was terrifying. You always had at the back of your head, you never knew when you'd be raided. I have been through a raid, and it's terrifying. And that's the biggest difference, really, is you know, now I don't live in that terror anymore. And seeing the industry grow because people, more people are actually coming on board, more people are actually operating like a regular business. The fear has really gone down, and for the most part, you know, at least I'm so fortunate. The places that we operate in California, the local governments are so welcoming and so cooperative that it's it's really great time right now.
1: Oh man, that's that's quite the relief. Hey, as my cannabis radio buddy Vivian McPeak would say, we got to pause for the cause because there are flaws in the laws. We're gonna be right back with more burning issues after these messages.
0: More burning issues coming up after we blaze through these words from our sponsors. The next generation of vaporizers has arrived. Vuber vaporizers are blazing the way with unparalleled technology for oil, concentrate, or dry flower pens. Providing unsurpassed customer service and expert craftsmanship, Boober Vaporizers use cutting-edge technology, providing a power-packed, smoother vapor with a lifetime guarantee. Experience vaporizing the way it was meant to be, the Boober way. Gondrepreneur.com, your guide to the
1: cannabis business world.
0: Chronicling the latest cannabis industry news and headlines. Well, with four states with tax and regulate and the District of Columbia. The state of cannabis. Oh my God, it's refreshing. We have people that generally wouldn't speak on behalf of cannabis for fear of retribution, fear of losing your practices, fear of, of many of those things, and, and find ourselves in, in a, a place that we finally can. Bringing you fact-based news and views and keeping listeners on the pulse of what's happening in the industry today. The state of cannabis. On demand anytime, only on CannabisRadio.com. Time to fan the fire on some more burning issues, only on CannabisRadio.com.
1: And we're back with California's own Andre special. We were just talking about how things have changed over the years, and I gotta admit, you did mention. There were times when law enforcement was less than thrilled about the dispensary there. I know you've had some rough encounters. Would you be willing to talk about any of that and how you sort of trained your kids and staff and s- folks to,
2: to handle that? Sure, absolutely. Well, if I could, can I start at the beginning when I was on the bus with Jack Hare, sure. That was many years ago, and we would go and do demonstrations and rallies at universities, and there would be times that we would be spit on, I was literally called a drug whore, horrible things just for us trying to bring our message of cannabis. Jack would have a 300-year-old Bible when people would be screaming that what we were doing was immoral, and the Bible was made of hemp and said so at the beginning, and then he would have to educate people, oh, well, that doesn't say it's made of marijuana. He'd educate people what hemp meant, and To come from a time like that into where we opened dispensaries and, like I said, it was terrifying because you never knew when you might be raided. And I opened one of the first clubs in Venice Beach in 2006 and being one of the first, you always have the risk of raid and unfortunately I did go through a raid and it was quite terrifying. I hear it was pretty spectacular raid, but they whisked me away so fast. I mostly missed it. Then I had two years of court where they really were trying to get me to accept a plea deal. And I was not going to accept anything except a jury trial, because again, I feel like what I do is extremely legal and I've always paid my taxes, always done anything that a legal business would do. And in the times of them not wanting me to take it to jury trial. You know, things happen. Like one time they, I think, quote, unquote, forgot to send notice of an appearance in court to either me or any of my three lawyers that I had. And I was so lucky I had some activist lawyers step up and help me. And because I missed that court date, because they didn't tell us, they actually came to my house in Oakland and grabbed me for a felony failure to appear. And I had to go in the felony tank in jail. And that in itself is really disheartening experience. I mean, they forcibly take your blood against your will. You're put in a cell with people for felony crimes, which sometimes are violent crimes. And it's pretty scary and something during that arrest that was really sad for me. My daughter was nine and during that arrest, they had me detained and weren't letting me have a phone call for many hours. And when I finally got a phone call home, my nine-year-old daughter, the first thing she said was, mommy, it's taking you so long this time in jail. You don't think the feds are picking up the case, do you? And it, it breaks my heart, you know, oh, that my God. nine-year-old, that's her boogeyman. That, that's always been our family's boogeyman is the federal government to the point where I had to give my kids training about what to do if the door ever kicked in. And it's very hard to explain to your kids, you know, if you ever get lost, if you ever need help, you call the police. But there's these other police that might not understand exactly what mom does and they might come in and here's what might happen. And I would literally go like that and clap my fingers and they would get down on the floor and we would practice. I said, okay, what happens if the door gets kicked in? And it may seem like an awful lot in today's world, but if you look at how statistically, how many kids are hurt and even killed in drug raids, I felt like it was my job as a mom to do. And to explain to them what to say and and how to act. So, my biggest fear is if that ever happened, I didn't want them running around and, and get hurt in the confusion of a raid. I and, mean, I've got and, and this image
1: thing- of your daughter and son lying with their hands behind their heads and on the floor and stuff. It's just, oh
2: man, woo. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what we practice. But the thing is that I told them when I opened dispensaries, well, first of all, they've always been with me on the picket lines and. At rallies, they've always, you know, been around the protests. We go to a lot of rallies and a lot of protests. And when I finally did decide to open a dispensary, like I said, I feel like what I'm doing is extremely legal and very moral, and I wanted to tell my kids the truth. I had other friends who were operating dispensaries that would lie to their kids, say they were going to a different job every day, but I felt like... I wasn't going to be ashamed of what I do. So I, I told them what I do. I tried to best explain the political situation to them. So they've always been aware of it. And, yeah, they're incredible kids.
1: <laughs> it's just an amazing inoculation. I mean, what kind of stressor are they going to come up against? You know, oh, gee, I, I'm, I got a quiz tomorrow. Like, you know, it's amazing training. It's it's stellar. I, I, I just, I got it. My hat's off to you.
2: Thank wow. you so much. I've been really, really lucky because, unfortunately, Dave, a couple of their friends and, and some of my close friends have gone to jail for extended periods of time, and they see other kids losing their parents. So we've been very, very lucky.
1: Well, and I, I know you've got some, you know, some dear friends who are you know, serving outrageous sentences. Do you, do you want to explain how some of those things worked out or what you think went wrong?
2: Well, I think one of the most outrageous is Eddie Lepp, who is at the tail end of a 10-year sentence for growing cannabis, and he, he was a Vietnam veteran that was growing for many patients, an incredible, compassionate man, and the irony is he's doing his time in Colorado right now, so he's doing 10 years in Colorado federal prison for a few hundred plants, you know, obviously in the state where it's it's legal now, it's so heartbreaking to think of that. A dear friend, Molly Fry, and her husband just recently got out of jail after doing five years, and she, she was one of the first prescribing doctors, so she was targeted. There's a guy, Luke Scarmazzo, that was in Modesto, which is the Eastern District, at a time when it was terrible. I mean, in maybe 2006 or 2007, I believe he was raided... He's doing 22 years, and he was 22 years for operating a legal dispensary, I mean, following California law, but he got in um, the federal target, and I believe he was about 28 years old when he was sentenced to 22 years in federal prison, and he's in there right now, so it's pretty heartbreaking.
1: Well, wow, it's hard to I mean, it's hard to follow up with questions on on things like that, but I, I do want to move to sort of the cheerier days of how the dispensaries work now and and how it seems to light up the lives of the clients and and patients you guys have.
2: Yes, it's incredible to see how we've moved forward. For instance, when I opened my first dispensary in two thousand and four, we were literally about ninety percent male and ten percent female. And I think some of that was the stigma with women and mothers about using cannabis. There was also child protective services in Sacramento area at that time. If you were just simply a patient, that was grounds to lose your child. There was a lot of reasons why women were shut out. And now moving forward, we're almost 50-50 of men and women. So that's one of the biggest things that I've seen change I've also seen a lot more elderly people come in that never, that said, I've never smoked a joint in my life and I never thought I would, but there's so many alternatives. A lot of them start with the topicals that are amazing. They're anti-inflammatory, they're pain relief, and they'll move from there they'll try those for a while and maybe say, you know, I've had sleep problems. Could I try an edible or a tincture? And that has just been so heartwarming for me to see that all my dispensaries, that's, that's one part of the model, is that we give back. If you're elderly or a student, you know, we have discounts for veterans, everybody. If you have cancer or end-of-life diagnosis, if you're a child with epilepsy, you get all your medicine for free. And that's really important for us to do. And speaking of the children, that's one of the biggest things that we've seen is the children. Back 10 years ago, that was the biggest cry of our opponents. What about the children? And now that's really the thing that's been bringing it forward in, across the country in a big way. Sanjay Gupta's documentaries that he did about children with epilepsy, it has been incredible. It's made more doctors interested in learning about it. It really has brought a legitimacy to cannabis. And so we're seeing many, many kids with epilepsy, and I'm talking about forms of epilepsy where you can have up to a 1,000 seizures a day and the children become blind and mentally retarded and and eventually die very young, and it's terrible. And we're seeing kids whose doctors, whose epilepsy doctors are recommending, go get some cannabis. And we have formulas that seem to work especially well for that kind of treatment of non-alcohol tinctures. So that's so exciting for me to see, especially as a parent, and moving forward, all the testing that's being done, we lab test everything, and to learn the different properties has been really exciting, although I have to say that for the most part, it lines up with what we've thought by by experiencing it ourselves. But as we move forward, we can really do a lot of genetic breeding towards certain conditions, and that, to me, is what's really exciting, is moving forward the science and where we're going to go.
1: Well, we have to collaborate on some of that, Andre. I'm, I'm excited about those kind of data, and, and we'll formalize that and make sure the word gets out. I just don't want to invade any of your proprietary <laughs> wonders. Um, hey, it's been a wonderful time here on Burning Issues with uh, California's own Andre Special. We'll be right back with self-compassion and the art of activism. But thanks so much, Andre.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: More burning issues coming up after we blaze through these words from our sponsors.
2: Cannabis Confidential with Dr. Dina. Candid. I want to give you the inside story. Captivating. I want to introduce you to my kind and amazingly talented friends. Compelling. We get to meet some of the most amazing cannabis activists and warriors around.
0: Time to fan the fire on some more burning issues only on cannabisradio.com.
1: And welcome back to Burning Issues. I'm Dr. Mitch Earlywine with our next chapter of Self Compassion in the Art of Activism. Here's the part of our show that encourages all our listeners to take good care of themselves and each other. A dear friend said she would actually feel a lot better if she could get some coaching about disputing gateway theory she has a child who has struggled with heroin and every time she goes to support groups she ends up watching folks blame everything on cannabis it's distressing to watch these folks make this error so I hope that explaining it away will help her and help all of us spread the word that gateway theory is just a myth I wanna emphasize that, as angry as these folks might make us, we do our best when we stay calm and try to educate. Gateway theory usually means something like cannabis use will make people crave hard drugs the way salt makes you thirsty. Now, anyone who has used the plant knows this isn't true, but a lot of folks who have loved ones struggling with hard drugs really need an explanation. So they jump on this one. There are three points I want to emphasize. First, millions of people have used cannabis and never even seen hard drugs. Thousands of people use hard drugs way before they use cannabis. And last, some folks actually use cannabis to get off of hard drugs. So, first and foremost, at least 100 million Americans have now tried cannabis at least once. Over 40% of all US citizens over age 12. So, if there's a gateway, how many of those would you expect to use heroin? Not 100 million, maybe 90 million, 10 million, blah, blah. But in fact, fewer than 2% of US citizens have ever used heroin in their lives. And less than a tenth of 1% used heroin in the last month. So if there's a gateway, I sure don't think it's open very far. Plenty of folks who used heroin mentioned that they used cannabis first, but far and away the vast majority of people who've used cannabis have never even seen heroin. Those who do go on to use hard drugs... It's not because cannabis drove them to it. When you look at the data, it's usually some kind of personality characteristic, thrill-seeking, disinhibition, antisocial personality. And so they use multiple drugs, but it doesn't say anything about drugs. It just says about people. It's not that cannabis drove folks to use hard drugs. It's just that. Some people who like to use cannabis also happen to like using hard drugs, and they end up in this research. Second, literally thousands of people use hard drugs before they use cannabis. Most of the research on gateway theory actually throws these people out of their data sets. And even then, the studies still don't support gateway theory. Multiple studies of people in treatment for hard drug problems show big percentages, sometimes as much as a third of the sample, use heroin, crack, or meth before they use marijuana. It really depends upon what kind of neighborhood they call home. You can imagine, I'm sure, that folks who have crack all over their neighborhood are likely to try crack before they try cannabis. Obviously, cannabis couldn't be the gateway here. It wasn't what they used first. In fact, Allen Ginsberg, the famous beat poet, used to joke because he used heroin before he used cannabis. And he'd say, oh, yeah, heroin, it's a gateway drug. All right. But it's no joke. Cannabis does not drive folks to hard drugs. Finally, a meaningful bunch of medical cannabis users emphasize that they've turned to the plant in an effort to escape the grip of hard drugs. So at least for them, the plant is not a gateway to hard drugs. It's a pathway out. A large survey that Philippe Lucas and I did and some other wonderful colleagues, we published in this journal called Addiction Research and Theory. And we showed that out of 400 medical cannabis users in Canada, over 40% said that cannabis helped them stop harmful use of alcohol and a whopping 67% said the plant helped them stop using prescription drugs. If there's a gateway, it's probably a product of prohibition, not the plant. Craig Reinerman published some data comparing San Francisco to Amsterdam, and he found, in fact, the folks in San Francisco were the ones who were more likely to use hard drugs because cannabis was connected to that underground market there, whereas in Amsterdam it wasn't. So bottom line, people can use cannabis Far and away more of them never see heroin. A subset of folks use hard drugs way before they use cannabis. And lots and lots of folks report cannabis actually helps them escape hard drugs. So there's no gateway theory, nothing to blame cannabis for. By all means, let's leave the plant alone. Hey, thanks for listening to our show. You can find us on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and good old CannabisRadio.com. My hearty thanks to producer extraordinaire Brasco and our guest, the wonderful Andre Special. I'm Dr. Mitch Earlywine. Follow your heart and let the data be your guide.